Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm joined today by Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Uh, Ronan is off to an event today, which you'll hear about soon enough. Uh, and Zach is up to his elbows and tubular glue, so he won't be with he won't be with us today either. Uh, Dave, it's, it's just you and me today. How do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, stoked. I'm stoked. Uh, I think we can do this, James. Uh, we've done this long enough. Uh, we've done it before, and I think this episode is going to be great. Mm, I can I can feel the excitement just emanating off of my computer screen right now. <laughs> well, we definitely have plenty to keep you and I busy today. Uh, in the news, we've got some new road and mountain bike wheels to chat about. Uh, Bond is getting into the Clippus pedal game a little with a little bit more seriousness, it seems. Uh, yet more changes are afoot at Wahoo Fitness. There may finally be some light at the end of the tunnel for Parley Cycles. Uh, and we'll pour one out for a much-loved bike model that's been around pretty much forever, but has now seemingly been discontinued. Uh, we've also got some thoughts on staying safe while riding on the road and how that's apparently affecting bike commuting rates, at least in the U.S. Uh, and, and Dave's been obsessing about spares. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and finally, we'll wrap up with a little PSA. They may save you some headache and some money down the road. Um, wow, what a tease. How about that, huh? Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so so good at not quite revealing the whole story yet. Uh, anyway, all right. First up in the news, uh, DT Swiss recently unveiled a new range of aero aluminum wheels that they're billing as aero for all options, given their relatively low cost. Uh, they've got four models in total built around two new rims, one for the road with a 20 mil internal width and a 24 mil external width. Uh, the other one aimed at endurance road bikes with a 22 millimeter internal width and 26 mil external width. Both of those are 30 mils deep. Um, they are paired to one of two hub sets, one based on the 350, I believe, with DT Swiss's 36 tooth star ratchet driver. The other one based on the 370 with an 18 tooth ratchet LN star ratchet. Well, yeah, basically a star ratchet driver. Uh, and all with either DT Swiss's aero comp or aero comp wide bladed stainless steel spokes and hidden nipples for the two road models. Uh, the weights aren't amazing. Uh, but they're pretty reasonable. Started just over 1,700 grams for the AR1600 Spline 30, and then going up to 1,837 grams for the E1800 Spline 30. So confusing with the names. Uh, but it's the prices that I'm really happy about. So they start at just 542 US or 410 uh, pounds sterling, 430 euros, uh, and that's for a pair. And then they top out at $757 US, 570 pounds or 600 euros. So assuming these are kind of up to snuff with what we expect from DT Swiss in terms of quality and component quality. Uh, they look pretty good. Dave, what do you think? Uh, what Can you explain the naming? We've got uh, the AR, we've got an A, we've got an ER, and we've got an E. Is the is the E the endurance and the A is the... Arrow. Arrow. Okay, that makes sense. All right. So It's a little more confusing to me why, like the difference between the AR and the A... Mm. That's not entirely clear to me, but uh, AR, Aero Road, A, Aero Road mm. more, and then ER, well, Endurance the, Road, and E, Endurance, but I'm not really sure why the why the R's are missing from those. But the the, the R is used on the, the 1600 versions, which are the higher end, you know, better spoke, better hub, and the R, the, the lack of the R seems to align with the cheaper version. Uh, yeah, you're right. It, it feels... It, it is confusing, but anyway. Uh, so yeah, I mean this this looks like a, a very strong OE play to me. Uh, I mean DT Swiss traditionally has managed to get its more entry level wheels onto a lot of bikes uh, as as a stock component for especially brands that don't want to have their own in house 
generic brand. Uh, and this seems to be continuing that in a big way. I can't can't imagine there being a huge after market aftermarket demand for for such wheels, but yeah, certainly I think if if your new bike came with these, you probably wouldn't complain. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think I agree that you're not going to have a whole bunch of people kind of like, you know, lusting over the DT Swiss website for some kind of lower cost aluminum wheels. For but, some 1700 uh, gram or 30 mil yeah, although, pseudo aero wheels. Yeah. I don't know. Like if you were getting something like a real, real entry level road bike and that's mm-hmm. what you were starting with and you wanted to do some sort of upgrade, I mean, wheels and tires are definitely the first place to always look. For sure. Um, and buying pedals. Yeah. And yes, and bike pedals are generally helpful when you're trying to ride a bike that doesn't come with pedals. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I think uh, with all the attention paid to higher end carbon wheels, we talk about how, you know, carbon wheels are coming down in price, but they're still usually like $1,500 US. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still hardly inexpensive. So the fact that these come in at, you know, roughly a third to half of that price, and sure, they're heavier. Um, mm. But uh, I think these would be probably pretty good uh I mean, the rims they have sleeve joints so they're not welded uh the rim mm-hmm. weights are not amazing they're 535 535 grams for the narrower rim, uh, road rim and 565 for the endurance road um and then i guess from you know dt swiss is saying that these are more aero than uh like hunt's comparable uh aero sl aluminum wheel and uh, they quoted another Mavic wheel that I can't remember the model off the top of my head. Um, so there, there is supposedly some actual aero advantage to these compared mm. to some of the other aluminum stuff out there. Um, you know, people who are big on the whole, um, what is it, the 105% rule as far as the tire width versus rim width thing are not going to be super stoked to see that these are relatively narrow externally. Um, yeah. But all things considered, I think if you're in the budget for an aluminum wheel, that's probably not going to be like the absolute most important no. thing for you anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 30 mil depth isn't super deep. Uh, it's probably worth noting that DT Swiss, this isn't the first time they've done an alloy aero wheel. Like they've they've had such a thing in their catalog for, I'm thinking back rim brake days, probably 15 years now. I think it was the, like the R1.2 rim off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, I mean, they've definitely done similar before, but you know, with debt more dated profiles. Um, what do you think about the internal nipples? You know, it's funny. I actually asked DT Swiss about that because, um, uh, let's see. Actually, I'm trying to remember if I asked them about it specifically or because I, I asked about the external rim width because that wasn't listed in the press materials. And I'm trying to remember if I asked about the hidden nipples specifically or if they just wrote back referencing those knowing how we feel about them. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, DT Swiss's position on the internal nipples for the two uh, road models are that uh, their build quality is such and that their de-stressing process is such that unless you basically were to just like smash into something, uh, they these wheels shouldn't need, shouldn't actually need to be trued. Um, and in their defense, I guess I will say that uh, for wheels that I have tested, ridden, built, whatever, that have gone through good de-stressing processes, yeah. it is actually generally Anywhere. true that you probably yeah. don't have to do a whole lot to them. Yeah, and especially now with disc brakes, you sort of, you know, you can tolerate a, a millimeter or so run out uh, at the rim without really any negative effect on, on the bike. So yep. Uh, yep. there is that that tolerance. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I think, yeah, for when you do need to adjust them, that's going to be more annoying uh but perhaps not a total deal breaker 
yeah. So yeah, these look pretty interesting to me. Uh, like you said, probably is an OE play. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, they've offered, DT Swiss has offered to send a set out if we want to check them out. So I may take them up on that. We'll see. Um, I don't know. If you'd like us to check them out, let us know in the comments. All right. So uh, for regular listeners of Geek Warning, remember when we said a few weeks ago in the podcast that Mavic was coming back to the U.S.? Uh, well, I followed up with that, uh, with the official announcement and some additional information from the folks at the newly formed Mavic North America. <clears throat> in a written article on Escape Collective a couple weeks ago. Uh, and one thing they said that really stood out to me was that this supposedly wasn't the Mavic of yesteryear, which is interesting. Um, well, they have just announced some new gravel wheels, and this, as it turns out, this definitely is not the same Mavic as it was before. This is very different. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll get to that in just a second, but um, the meat of the release that they made today, they've got two new aluminum gravel wheels, uh, both of them under the all-road label which is kind of curious because i guess it's there's their gravel wheels i think um anyway they both have 25 mil internal width 28 mil external widths uh both of the rims use mavic's uh kind of unique four drilling process where they basically melt nipple threads right into the rim uh it's pretty neat because it means that you don't have holes on the outside of the rim so it's you have easy tubeless setup mm. uh both wheel sets are also built around mavic's infinity hub that uses a star ratchet style driver um, so the nicer version is the all-road SL. It gets extra milling on the rim between the spoke holes. It's shave a few extra rams. Uh, it gets nicer buttered elliptical stainless steel spokes instead of the flat ones on the all-road S, uh, which doesn't get that milling. Uh, the claim weights are pretty good. Uh, the all-road SL, it's $16.55 um, uh, for the set. And then the all-road S is claimed to be $17.90. So not crazy light, but Mavic usually goes for kind of lower inertia instead of lower static weight and if memory serves, that usually kind of holds up. Those wheels usually feel lighter than they are. Uh, prices are pretty good, though, too. Uh, I don't have pricing in U.S. or Australian or um, British currency, unfortunately. All I have is 890 euros for the All-Road SL and 530 euros for the All-Road S, which is pretty good. Um, but what is most interesting about both of these wheels is that, so yes, they are aluminum gravel wheels. Nothing crazy there. However, they are hookless. Where are the hooks, uh, James? What? Where what? are the hooks? This is not the Mavic I know. Uh, yeah, kind of bizarre, huh? Because I think we're definitely used to hookless rims for a mountain bike. We are becoming more accustomed to hookless rims for carbon road wheels now. Uh, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that you can get substantially lower production costs, essentially. You, you get lower scrap rates because the wheels are coming out more consistent. You can use metal tooling. Um, and yes, there are, well, there are some other claimed benefits. Um, but fundamentally, yeah, it, it returns to cost of manufacture. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you don't really have that with aluminum rims, however, because uh, aluminum rims, they come out as straight extrusions out of a die. And you can basically make that extrusion almost whatever shape you want. Uh, and adding hooks, as far as I can tell, doesn't add anything. Doesn't add anything to the cost. No, I mean that's certainly the the what we'd heard from uh, industry members in the past is about you know whether hookless would come down to lower price points. Was that it doesn't really need to on aluminium wheels because yeah, as you say, that extrusion it's basically like making you know a sausage of of the rim profile, right? And then they they and then they make it into a hoop and they they either weld it or or pin it or sleeve it at you know, as the hoop comes together. I mean, that's that's kind of as, as simple as it is to, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically how an aluminum rim is made. That is basically right, though. It's, it's sort of like when you were making like Play-Doh spaghetti back in the day when you were a kid, right? 
Um, so yeah, I, I have not had a chance to talk to Mavic about this. This just came through a few hours ago. I mean, this clearly is a conscious decision by them to make these hookless because they very easily could have made them hooked. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what to think here because a lot of times you get information uh, for hookless rims talking about how you can make the rim a lot stronger because the hooks, like th- that straight wall can be made pretty thick. Um, and then you've got all that wall material to kind of distribute the load and that sort of thing when you hit stuff. Um, but if you caught me earlier, I was kind of wondering if anyone would have caught this when I blitzed through the specs. So yes, 25 mil internal width, 28 mil external width. Those hooks, those walls are not thick. No, nope. um, it's 1.5 so millimeter wall. Yeah. So I'm actually really eager to bring some of these in because I want to see if they will actually hold up to impacts. I, 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 Forgive me, Mavic. I'm a little skeptical here. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess it's, uh, you know, this is very fresh news to us on these wheels. And uh, yeah, I guess it's one we'll need to follow up on and and find out more and get a better understanding of why. And I guess, yeah, most surprising to me is of all companies that Mavic has done this because they, you know, they they were there from the beginning of, of tubular standards and they've been the most vocal and the most conservative when it comes to such things. Uh, it just, it feels a little outside their wheelhouse to do this. Ah, oh, God, Dave with the puns today. That one wasn't Goodness. even intended, to be honest. But uh, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I, I totally hear you. Um, this is certainly not something I had on my bingo card. Um, uh, like I said, I, the, the the specs are intriguing. I mean, the internal width is definitely very thoroughly modern. Um like I said, the weight doesn't blow me away, but again, Mavic wheels historically have kind of felt lighter than they than they appear on the scale. Um, I'm I'm so intrigued, and and I do I do have a soft spot for rims that don't have drillings in the outer wall. Mm. Uh, absolutely love that, um, but especially where I am for the gravel that I have out here, there's just a lot of sharp rocks. Uh, we tend to hit stuff pretty hard. Um, not really sure how this is going to go. And then uh, particularly given what Mavic had told me in that written article on Escape Collective where they were sounding pretty conservative as far as their kind of crash replacement, ride damage sort of policy. Um, yeah, one and a half mil aluminum hookless sidewall seems, well, a little scary, but I guess I'll find out soon enough. Yeah, to be continued. I'll put in my request and we'll keep you posted. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dave, what's happening on the mountain bike side at Zip? Because they've got some new wheels too. They, they've they been playing around in the mountain bike game for some time now, but with a pretty heavy like trail enduro style wheel. And uh, more recently, we've seen, we've spotted some, what looked to be very lightweight cross country wheels out and about in uh, Lifetime Grand Prix and other events. And uh, yeah, they've they've finally released those. So... The Zip One Zero High Top, uh, and yeah, it's cross country wheel set. There's there's two versions, two different price points. Uh, there's the SW, which is the the top end version. Uh, you're looking at a one thousand three hundred twenty five gram wheel set for that. Or there's the S version at uh, a somewhat heavier one thousand four hundred ninety five grams claimed for the pair. Uh, and they're using the exact same rim, so it's a hookless carbon rim. Uh, minuscule 21 millimeter depth uh with a 30 mil internal width and 37 points 
seven mil external width, so some pretty pretty thick beads on the side of those rooms to fend off uh, some rock strikes, which seems good. Uh, but yeah, the big claims for this is uh, compliance. So not stiffer, not uh, not claiming to be the lightest out there, but claiming to be smoother, which you know I kind of like. I think it's a big well. I think it's a pretty big deal personally. Just having tried. And certainly haven't ridden a, a pretty wide range of carbon mountain bike wheels, some of which were definitely very, very stiff and others which were shockingly compliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess on the compliant and softer riding side, the ones that stick to – kind of come to mind right away are the ones I still have to ride up, unfortunately. Those uh, – mm. uh, the Bird Hawk 30s. Mm. Um, those use a rim that are made by a We Are One. Similar idea, like super, super shallow. I mean the birds are different because they use a like a woven polymer spoke. Um, yeah whereas the, the zips are all stainless steel stuff. Um, but I like this idea of having a softer riding wheel because I do think that there is a performance advantage there. I mean, like the aero sure. thing is just not a, not as big of a deal, but if you can get more comfort and more importantly, more traction, then yep. that is only a plus. And less fatigue, uh, which is something I suddenly noticed when riding really stiff wheels off-road is my hands just cop it really quickly. Um, you know, yeah. Half an hour or hour, I start to get uncomfortable, whereas, uh, yeah, with a wheel with a some level of flex to it that that sort of uh stays off for for longer so uh yeah i'm I'm definitely all for the idea of smoother softer wheels off-road and um happy to see zip kind of make that move uh but yeah i guess back to the differences so uh the sw the more expensive version uh you're looking at uh $1,950 us for a pair uh, and then the lower cost, the S version, uh, $1,350. And so they're both using the identical carbon rim, but uh, different spokes. They're like bladed versus double-butted round between the two. And then they're both using Zip's own hubs, but the the SW obviously has a, a higher and lighter lighter weight hub with higher, uh, higher 66 points of engagement. The cheaper version, the S version, has 52 points of engagement with what is sure to be a heavier hub. Um only available in boost spacing, only 29-inch diameter, uh, available with XD or microspine free hub bodies, no HG. Yeah, and then on the front hubs, uh, they are available with the kind of RockShox-specific torque caps, mm-hmm. the oversized end caps. And then yep. they do also, thankfully, have regular-sized end caps, um, which I'm actually waiting for at the moment because Zip just sent oh. over a set of the uh, – Send a set of the high top S's over uh, for review, but I can't mount them up yet because I can't put them on a bike because oh. the bike that I need to use them on does not have a RockShox fork on it. Oh, that's sacrilege. So. Uh, <laughs> does, do they work? Will they still turn around if you put them on a – if they're not mounted to a SID? Uh, I think there's some some level of galvanic corrosion that's to be expected. Wow, okay. Um, so I'm not really sure, but I think the way it's designed, it, like it'll actually eat away at the fork tips. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. But like not – Implode or explode? Yeah, it's a slow progression. Yeah, not yeah. just straight catastrophic. Okay, well mm-hmm. that sounds all right. Um, <laughs> can outfox them on that one. Uh, and then, oh. sorry, that wasn't even necessary. Uh, uh, terrible. Yeah, the other thing that's kind of interesting here is the SW includes the new TieWiz 2.0, which looks kind of cool. Uh, so the TieWiz is like their little uh, electronic tire uh, pressure sensing gauge that sits in line to the valve. Uh, well, it's actually part of the valve. Uh, and yeah, the new 2.0 looks pretty neat. It's it's kind of got different rubber grommets that are designed to fit with all different various rim shapes and rim heights and comes with different uh, valve lengths and all that. And what stood out to me is that they're claiming plus or minus 2% accuracy at 
0.1 PSI increments, which sounds very, very accurate. It does sound very accurate. Interestingly enough, for so the original TireWiz, um, un- unless you got the one that was built into their kind of more enduro-focused rim, yep. um, the original TireWiz is, was a little ungainly because it replaced, um, it basically threaded onto the oppressive valve stem. And it, depending on what sort of valve stem you had on there, um, it it just ended up being real long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have been using them on my fat bike for the mm. last few seasons, Interesting. mainly because you're typically running like very, very low single digit PSIs. And actually was pretty helpful for me to see that level of resolution. Mm. Um, but uh, I mean, I I feel like I like the idea, the concept that this sort of thing is out there. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much I see the need for it. For I think it's neat that they're included with the with the SW wheels. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how much how much appeal there is for just kind of everyday wheels in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say that if there is that level of accuracy, that is that it is nice to see because virtually every pump that's out there with an analog gauge is not going to offer the sort of pressure resolution that a lot of kind of more experienced mountain bikers might want to see in their yeah. uh, in in their tire setup. Um, it's one of the reasons I use a digital gauge or digital a pump with a digital gauge on uh, on my setups. And Zip also says that you have like you have basically have like a like a, a visual alarm essentially for when you're below a certain window for pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I still check my pressure before every ride, which might seem like overkill to some people, but I think it's pretty valuable to do. Um, I don't know. Kind of a neat add-on. Yeah, and yeah, $120 US for a pair of them if you want them onto your wheels. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it. there's a place for this and certainly for people that are uh, love to experiment with pressures as they ride, and, you know, especially if you don't want to carry a gauge with you and you can continuously drop your pressures while you're riding, I think it's valuable. But personally, it's not something I'd use long-term, you know, mounted to my bike. It's probably something I'd more use as a, to dial in a you know new wheel setup or something like that and then and then right. get rid of them but they're they're kind of you know a integral part of the valve stem so you actually have to replace your tubeless valves in order to swap them in and out so yeah it's it's not the easiest thing just to rip off your bike once you're done with them i mean at least you don't have to retape the ribbons and stuff like that so no. it could be worse no. yeah. um but yeah like again pretty neat that they're included in the sws uh not sure how many takers there will be for adding them onto their existing wheels but we'll find out um on zip uh they've quietly added some weight to their road wheels oh interesting do we know why uh officially they've said to increase durability and stiffness of the rim uh and i've now asked twice for what that means and why and how uh no answer on that but uh which leads me to assume bad things but um yeah, so basically uh, all the hookless road wheels, like the the 404, the 454, the 353 NSW, uh, quite a few of the models have gained, say, 50 to 70 grams across the pair of them. Uh, so it's not an insignificant weight figure, and you know it's, it's in some cases taken their wheels from being incredibly weight competitive to just being kind of average, because that's how close a lot of the, the competition is. Uh but yeah, they've they've quietly done it, and yeah, if you look at their website, it's sort of all the claimed weights have bumped up, and the increased durability. I can imagine, you know, when you when you think about rim durability, you've either got like the durability under spoke tension, 
spokes pulling out the rim or you've got like rim strike durability. So, I mean, it's it's got to be one of those two, I would imagine. Uh, and then the stiffness, I've asked the question, I haven't heard back, but I mean, I can't imagine them really wanting to boost the lateral stiffness of the wheel given the developments they've done in, say, the mountain bike space where they've you know realized that compliance is so important, which leads me to assume that they're trying to increase like the hoop stiffness of the wheel to you know probably prevent spoke loss under tubeless high tubeless pressures so but now i'm just assuming and speculating because i don't have the information available so anyway Hmm. well i think uh it's unfortunate that we don't have official information but i would tend to agree with you that generally speaking companies don't add weight just because they feel like it yeah um yeah, it's not a huge amount of weight to add. What'd you say? Fifty to seventy grams per set. Yeah. Um, yeah, not, not a yeah. it's it's probably not something that most people will notice, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but uh yeah, probably a little disappointing if you're looking for a set of wheels that are like at the tippy end of the competitive weight market. Um hmm. well, I guess uh we'll just see if we hear from Zip on what's going on there. Yeah. Um, I'm not expecting to be told exactly why they've increased the weight, um, but the le- the less information I'm given, the more skeptical I become. So we'll put it. I'll put that there. Hmm. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think you may have just gotten yourself knocked off of the holiday card lid for zip for zip, Dave. Perhaps. Perhaps. But uh, to be rectified in a future episode, if if the information comes to light. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, moving away from wheels, uh, Bontrager has had clipless pedals in its range for a, a really pretty long time, as far as I can remember. Um, but they've always been pretty inexpensive offerings, typically from, I'm not sure what manufacturer was making them for them, be it, you know, Wellgo or VP or whoever. Um, but uh, Bontrager now seems to be taking things a little more seriously because they have a new partnership with Look for five new mountain bike models. Um, interestingly enough, they don't really make a big deal of this partnership with look. And I asked them about it just because I recognize the binding hardware that's on the pedals. And they did at least confirm that these are developed with look. So that was nice to hear. Um, you got three new cross country models, the Covey pro, the Covey elite and the Covey comp, and then two trail models, uh, the line elite and the line comp, uh, all of them use the same chromoly spindles, uh, double row ball bearings. Uh, they all use binding mechanisms that are made by look. Um, and the only real differences are the body materials. So the Kobe Pro uses a uh, a composite body with bolt-on metal pads, and then the mid-range models use forged aluminum bodies. Entry-level ones use cast aluminum bodies. And then uh, weights are pretty good, uh, like 336 grams to 383 grams for the set per set of the Kobe's, depending on which model. 430 to 450 for the for the two lines. And then uh, the pricing is what is kind of drawing my attention here a little bit because the top end Kobe Pro is 150 US. Uh, puts it kind of in between a Shimano XT and XTR in terms of cost and weight. Uh, and then the Kobe comps are about the same price and weight as the kind of the Shimano M520, that, you know, this stalwart indestructible clipless pedal at the bargain price. Um, same story with lines, weights in between XT and XTR trail, less expensive though, at about 75 to 110 US. Uh, Dave, what do you think is Trek's motivation here for even bothering to do this? Uh, I think it's certainly related to their uh, vertically integrated retail network. So they own a lot of their own bike shops, and uh, the more products they can offer and produce themselves, the more profit they get. So uh, I think 
that's a very skeptical view and it's probably sounds a little harsh than it needs to be but uh yeah i think that's the reason why they have their own pedals and rather than just selling every customer that buys a trek onto shimano pedals they can now sell them onto their own pedal which inevitably has a, a higher margin in it for them uh that said i think the product is going to be just fine and is going to be com- you know they've done their research and they've come up with a product that is competitive so i don't think it's you know, it's not dishonest for them to make more money here as long as they're still producing a a good product for everyone. And uh, I've been running some look mountain bike pedals for a little over a year now, and they're perfectly fine. Like they're, yeah, uh, there's, I compared directly compared to a Shimano, I'd probably still pick the Shimano just because traditionally speaking, the equivalent weight Shimano pedal is, is cheaper and more easily serviced from my point of view. But other than that, I mean, the the performance between the two is is quite comparable, uh, and if anything, the look kind of has a, a nicer a nicer platform feel with the shoe. Uh, yeah, know, I more. agree with that. They seem to have uh, essentially it's like a slightly wider platform in general, like a little, little bit more shoe support, which I've mm-hmm. always liked, uh, especially yeah. on the cross country pedal. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it looks like a a good product. Uh, whether it's a better product than what's already out there is remains to be seen but i'm sure whoever gets them will be happy with them i'm honestly a little bit surprised that they didn't do uh like given how much they go super high end with a lot of their other stuff uh i'm a little surprised that we didn't see like a kobe rsl with like a titanium spindle or something like that because i feel like that at that point would be kind of more of a like more of a distinguishing feature um because for for cross country pedals, I, at least I feel like XTR is widely considered to be more or less just about the best you can get uh, in terms of overall durability and performance and stuff like that. Um, and then there are some aftermarket options for titanium spindles for XTRs, which at least for lighter riders, anyway. It would have been I, I would have been really curious to see a Kobe RSL you know, go a little bit above in cost, lower in weight, yeah. just have something that stands apart. Yeah, I, I kind of I could kind of understand why they don't do it from I mean the cost point of view, but also from the point of view of like then the having to, well not only that, but then having to like educate your staff across all your dealer network internationally that like you can sell all these pedals to everyone, but then this top end most expensive version is only for people under like ninety kilograms, uh, and that 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 matters because you know you go above that weight and you start to run the ball bearing through the the titanium spindle like every other titanium spindle pedal that grooves out eventually so yeah it's i I don't know i kind of understand them just trying to keep the line simpler in that sense yeah fair i mean this is we're talking about yeah so um but who knows um maybe there's other reasons behind that but yeah i'm not totally against that and i'd imagine track dealers would probably still sell you a, a pair of xtr pedals or a a Crank Brothers 11 or something like that if you want something crazy light. I dare say Trek dealers will be happy to sell you whatever they have that you mm-hmm. want. That's true. Well, uh, either way, it's nice to see some more options. Uh, sure, these may not necessarily blow the doors off, uh, may not move the needle overall in the clipless pedal market, but it's always nice to have more options. So could be could be worse. And they are Shimano SPD compatible, so I should mm. mention that. Yeah. So that's it's, always nice to see. I am, I am kind of like intrigued by Bontrager's the way they do things because like they've done partnerships with say silka before uh a lot of their maintenance products i believe are actually produced by maxima not that they announced that partnership but you can kind of 
tell by the way things smell and um and the bottle shapes <laughs> uh yeah i don't know like it's it's kind of a I guess it's it's worth acknowledging like that that's, that's quite cool that they they do go to the effort of finding you know reputable and well-respected brands and they you know just try to relabel those products rather than you know recreate the wheel kind of like almost the costco kinda, model well i was just gonna say it kind of yeah. reminds me of costco or trader joe's or something like that where yeah they just trace back to the actual manufacturer and then make their own house label stuff mm-hmm um, I mean, it's a good way to go. I mean, at least in the in the grocery store business, it's a great way to basically get the exact same product for less money. Yeah, yeah. I wonder when Trek's going to get their own chicken factory. Mm. <laughs> it's very Trek U.S. Century chickens <laughs> reference. <laughs> oh man, uh, I'm guessing we shouldn't hold our breath on that one. <laughs> but um, well, we also have some recent news to share about Wahoo Fitness. I know this is something that we've talked about in the past about. Uh, certainly a bit of turmoil going on over there. Um, and they seem to be streamlining a little bit more re- uh, lately. So they recently have ditched RGT, uh, Road Grand Tour, basically uh, sort of their online riding platform. Uh, it's something that they acquired only like a year and a half ago, uh, less than two years ago, I believe. Um, similar to Zwift in a lot of ways, but one thing that was kind of neat that you was that you could upload your own GPS ride data. So you could essentially recreate a, a, your own course uh, digitally. Um, but uh, apparently they never really just got, they just never really got much traction in terms of users. Um, and this is some numbers shared actually by D, our, our friend Ray over at Decent Rainmaker. He did a quick snapshot on a European, I think it was a Monday morning. So, admittedly, kind of a slower time in the in the global global clock here. Um, but he counted, or he he saw a live snapshot of about thirty nine hundred Zwift users at that particular time, and there were thirty five RGT users. So, uh, that's difference, not a great ratio there. Um, mm-hmm. So, RGT is going to be going away effective October 31st. Uh, Wahoo Fitness and Zwift have apparently kissed and made up because uh, if you are an existing RGT subscriber, you do get uh, a few, well, if you're a monthly subscriber, you'll get a few months of Zwift for free. If you're an annual subscriber, you'll get a free year of Zwift for free um, on top of whatever subscription you may already have with them. Um, so that's kind of a nice little, nice little consolation prize. Uh, it is still a little bit of a bummer to see that. I don't know. I mean, I'm always of the opinion that more competition in any particular space is a good thing. Um, so it's a little disappointing to see that there's some more consolidation going on in online trading platforms. But, um, that said, Zwift is pretty good. Um, and if this means that Wahoo can concentrate on the stuff that it really historically had done well and can go back to doing that stuff well then i think this is a good move it does seem like the schoolyard fight is over (laughs) but uh yeah i mean zwift is just so dominant in this space that you kind of do have to question that all the the brands that started up in the last three to four or five years you know how how they remain competitive in this market space so yeah it doesn't doesn't completely surprise me that there's like a consolidation of of these platforms uh yeah just obviously again feel sorry for the people that were obviously acquired and, and let go um familiar huh I, w- I would ask you how so dave but we don't have to go down that road <laughs> let's not anyway 
Yeah. Uh, in, in brighter news on the business front, uh, Parley Cycles, um, the East Coast U.S.-based custom carbon company that a lot of people will have known and come to love over however many, I think, decades that Bob Parley had been in business, uh, makers of some of the absolute nicest custom carbon frames that are out there. Uh, they unfortunately recently went through a bankruptcy, but it seems that they are now finished with that uh, mm. because they were recently sold to an investor. Dave, what, what do we have here? Yeah, independent investor John Harrison. Uh, he's come in, he's a lifelong cyclist, and he's bought the company and put himself in as uh, CEO and president, basically uh, effective immediately. So yeah, uh, Bob Parley is said to be staying on as the chief product designer. But, uh, and yeah, have his time freed up to focus on, uh, uh, yeah, freed up to focus his attention on working with the product design team to influence design direction and engineering. Uh, those words were from John Harrison himself. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Bob Parley is going to be full-time, uh, if, if I'm reading between the lines correctly there, but still involved in, in I guess, the direction of the product. Um, but yeah, I guess bigger picture, the, the company is still going to continue on the same path they were previously on. So they're going to be running both, uh, I guess, frames designed locally, uh, designed in-house, but then manufactured overseas, which uh, historically were like a, a monocog frame design. Uh, and then they will continue with the custom carbon in-house as well. Uh, do we anything? Do we know much about this person? Was it John Harrison? You said, yeah, yeah. Uh, not so much. Uh, I mean, he's I guess had a successful career in in small to medium sized businesses as a independent investor, and and yeah, this is this is uh, feels like a passion project in a, in a sense, but uh, no doubt, you know, as as is always the case. I mean, he's clearly in it to make money as well. So, uh, yeah, I think the the goals are to for him to steer the company back to growth and and find find revenue but uh who knows i mean it, it's it's obviously yeah parley's hit some hard times in recent time to to fall into chapter 11 bankruptcy and uh it'll be interesting to see if they can climb back out of it i mean it's interesting how we've seen time and again these smaller custom builders that have had such incredible success at certain periods and have been such absolute masters at what they had done. I mean, mm-hmm. the like bikes like the like the Z1 um, from Parley is just one of the absolute nicest tube and lug carbon custom frames that you could get on the road. Um, but I guess I, I, I mean, I, I wonder if it's just a matter of companies like that being unable to adapt to kind of changing tastes and that sort of thing. Because again, these were round tube carbon tube and lug bikes. Um, they were primarily rim brake, and then he transitioned to disc brake. But then, you know, the move to uh, the move to aerodynamic profiles is not something that they adapted to very well. Um, yeah, that that sort of just seemed to kind of leave the company behind. So, mm. hopefully, this means better things ahead. Uh, I really would love to see Parley come back. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's definitely an interesting space because you know for for decades they didn't really have a lot of competition in the custom carbon space i mean they really were pioneers in that area and you know first move first movers and all and all those sort of uh general advantages in business um but in recent years the you know that that high-end uh custom carbon and and similar um yeah or just high-end carbon market has has gotten quite quite saturated i mean you've got envy playing in it there's argonaut there's 
there's countless of other brands in this space. So it will be interesting to see how Pali managed to find their own niche and find their own strength again and, and, and what they what they come up with. I mean, they've teased that there's big product developments coming for 2024 and 2025, but yeah, it remains to be seen what those are. But uh, yeah, just to confirm, they've, they have... Um, John Harrison did confirm that they're, they're going to remain focused on the drop bar segment, so road and gravel bikes, and that they will continue to support uh, and look after pre-existing Pali customers. So they're going to carry all spares and you know look after the warranties on all that. So it really is like the, the, the Pali company just is, is back and continuing. It's not like he's bought the trademark and is starting fresh. It's, it's basically hitting the, the go button on the previous company. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, because some other... Companies who have kind of competed in that space, like you said, David, it's been pretty, yeah, pretty well saturated, I guess, considering that market's quite small. Um, but like you've got your like your Matt Applemans and your Nick Crumptons, and like those two outfits seem like they're doing seem like, from what I can tell anyway, they seem like they're still doing okay. But also for the most part, they've never really tried to be very big. Um, I mean, both of those are essentially one person outfits that are catering to a very high end market. So uh, it seems like they can. Uh, well, it seems like they're quite happy to deal with smaller volumes, whereas Parley was trying to grow into, like you, like you said, Asian-made models and stuff like that too. Um, and it just didn't go so well. So fingers crossed for Parley. We'll see yeah. how things go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with all this new product development. So we'll find out. For sure. Um, last thing on the news front is uh, it's a little sad, I have to say, because mm. we just caught wind today that uh, Surly – the kind of lower cost brand, uh, bike brand from Quality Bicycle Products, a big distributor in the US, uh, they sort of quietly put its cross check model out to pasture. They definitely didn't send a press release out for, or anything like that. Um, but the cross check has now been moved into the legacy portion of the website. It's no longer a current model. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, definitely a little bit sad. This thing has been around for well over 20 years. I believe it was introduced in 1999. Uh, and it was so far ahead of its time. We were digging into this a little bit before we started recording. Uh, it had stated clearance for 700 by 45 millimeter tires. Uh, and that's with fenders. And this, keep in mind, this was back in 1999. This was 24 years ago. Uh, well, well before the whole gravel craze. It was basically billed as a super inexpensive cyclocross bike that you could also just use for more. Uh, it was essentially billed for people who wanted to race cross but also wanted a bike that was just a lot more useful than just a cross bike. Um, pretty heavy. <laughs> cross bike has never been a light bike. Steel frame, steel like, fork. Like every Sally. Yeah, yeah. The first generation one even used a one inch front end, uh, and then it got upgraded to an inch and an eighth later, like the next year or something. They certainly introduced the Crosscheck as their first complete model in 2000, uh, and it's just sort of carried on forever since then. It's got plenty of mounts. Certainly, I don't know how many sizes they offered it in for the last year, but uh, at least at one point, the Crosscheck was offered in 10 sizes, which mm. just blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, t- tons of mounts, like rack and fenders, like tons of bottles, accessories, whatever. You could basically do whatever you wanted on a Crosscheck. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was like one of the, the early day monster cross kind of bikes that then led itself into being the sort of bike that people adapted into whatever bikepacking adventure or long distance gravel race or whatever it was that they they wanted to do or commuter i mean it's just such a versatile platform and it kind of feels like no no cross check was probably you know no one cross check was probably ever left the same way right like it's you know it's owner always customizes in some regard and 
it just had so much versatility in it. So yeah, I, I think uh, bike bike geeks and bike dorks around the world are, are probably pouring one out at the moment because uh, I'm sure many of them over their over their careers and progressions into being bigger nerds have have had one of these models at one point. So, um, but yeah, it, it's sort of uh, it's interesting. Yeah, seeing you know uh, QBP also getting rid of the All City brand in recent time and and now sort of reducing such an iconic removing such an iconic uh, model out of the Surly range. It does feel like they're going through a bit of a downsizing or a, a trimming for of, sure a trimming of the range so yeah i mean looking at surly range there's to us there's not an obvious direct replacement for the cross check at least not at the moment they've got a couple of drop bar bikes that kind of circle similarly at the more road end of things to what the cross check could do and then there's like the long haul trucker disc which is surly's dedicated touring bike uh which is obviously at the touring side of things but yeah not quite like that do it all gravelly cycle cross you know whatever you want to do with it bike um that seems to be better served in the salsa range of 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 bikes at the moment um i guess the yeah. one thing that is nice about uh the cross check having been around for so long is if you missed your opportunity to get a to, to get a cross check new mm-hmm. one upside of these things being so heavy is that they were also basically indestructible so yeah. if you were to find one used it's probably fine yep yep so yeah i think there's quite a few cross checks out there that have uh had the hands of frame builders involved at some point and maybe cut up and had couplers put into them or cut up and turned into a tall bike i've seen a few and all sorts of weird stuff but yeah uh, i'm sure there's uh many many thousands others that uh are untouched and probably still with original paint that you could pick up for uh, a steal Pun intended. Oh, God. <laughs> Dave, I know you sent me an article ages ago talking about how people who frequently tossed out puns like that had like higher intelligence, something like I can't. It was something along those lines. Yeah, I, I and, dispute that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I will say that uh, you're you're far quicker with the puns than I am, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, let's wrap up the news today because I know that we have definitely gone pretty long with news in previous episodes recently just because there have been a whole lot to talk about. So uh, our list of things that we that have been on our mind has just been growing longer and longer. Uh, so it's time that we get through some of those. So, uh, mm-hmm. Dave, you want to start with one? Like what what is this you're saying about thinking too much about what spares you carry and don't use? I think just generally uh, I think too much – I mean, there's this thing going around. In general, on, just period. <laughs> there's this thing going around on TikTok, and I'm not even on TikTok. I've just heard the second hand. But there's a thing going around about like people asking men how often they think about the Roman Empire, and the answer is apparently quite surprising. Uh, I personally don't think about the Roman Empire that often. Uh, I I think I think about spares and how I carry them on my bicycle far more. Uh, and yeah, a, a new bike always brings a new challenge of what spares do I need on this bike and how do I carry them? So yeah, just having got that, that e-mountain bike recently, it was, uh, it's on my mind as to what, uh, cause yeah, I don't like riding with backpacks. I always try to put my spares on the bike. And, uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been busy trying to like 3d print kind of, uh, adapters to let me carry CO2 as a, as a real emergency backup. Um, yeah, probably use some kind of backcountry research strap. Um, to hold a tube but then like it's a mullet wheel so then i was like you know 
I have to go back to a butyl tube because, you know, a TPU tube doesn't really extend so well between a 650B and a 29-inch wheel. Just lots to think about, James. There's always lots to think about. Uh, well, let me ask you this because you clearly have been thinking about this since you bought that. Well, since you even thought about buying that bike that mm. you that you bought. Um, what is on the list of spares then? Uh, so yeah, normally on every bike, I try to have a spare tube, a way to inflate the tube. Uh, I tend to use CO2 because the times that I actually use that spare tube are very, very, very rare. Uh, and then a tubeless plug kit, which is almost always Dynaplug, uh, just because reliable and easy to use. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, I like to have a, a multi-tool with like a, a tire lever and a chain breaker and all the hex keys I need. Um, so on my own mountain bikes, uh, I've traditionally always had the, or in recent time, I've had the the one-up multi-tool in the steerer tube. Uh, and I'll probably do that again on this on this e-bike. Um, I just need to figure out the the stem height before i commit to threading my steerer tube for this one up tool well it's funny that you mentioned that dave because i kind of went through a similar process when i was outfitting my bike for that breck epic mountain bike seat race earlier in the summer and i did settle on a co2 inflator and a separate plug kit and uh, i also had one of those uh milkit hasselhoff toolkits that include like a the day saver day saver multi-tools in there and uh, I liked how really nice and compact it was, but I actually pulled it off not too long ago because I went back to my kind of trusty uh, one-up EDC pump, the the bigger one, the 100cc one, uh, mainly because I discovered not too long ago that you could replace the tubeless fork kit in that mm-hmm. with a dyno plug. Mm. Because, of course, and I'm, I can't believe you haven't done this yet, but- I, I'm aware uh, so, of this, yeah. So someone made it. a three, yeah, someone made a three D printed adapter that lets you run the Dyna plug, uh, like the little steel plug insertion tool, into the end of the uh, uh, one up EDC port that you would normally use their little tubeless fork in, and uh, yeah, now you can use Dyna plugs instead of the little bacon strips. But you so, only get you only get one preloaded plug that way. You only get one preloaded plug. Yes. Okay. So are you, are you carrying uh, others? But I, but I feel like when you well when you pair that with a Dynaplug racer or like the carbon racer, just another mm-hmm. another supplemental one that you just mount next to the bottle cage or kind of attach it wherever, uh, then at that point you've got three plugs preloaded, mm. um, potentially like two small and one big even. Mm. Uh, or you could have five Dynaplugs preloaded actually depending yeah. on which plug kit you use. Yep. Uh, and then at that point you're pretty much covered for everything and I just don't really have to think about it because yeah. I feel like – I feel like you and I differ in the sense that you think about stuff way too much. Yeah. And I have so many things going on that I try to think about less and less all the time. Mm. And that is something that lets me think about less because all I have to do is I, I do have to remember to transfer the pump back and forth with to whatever yeah. bike I'm riding. Um, but other than that, uh, as long as I already have a tube strapped to the bike, then at that point, I'm already all set to go. Yeah. Those one-up pumps are, are the best mini pump for a mountain bike you can get. Uh, and the fact that you can stash the multi-tool in them is just genius. Uh, but I just, I just don't like having it on the bike. It's just bulky. And I think if, if my, if my frame had an extra bin cage mount that allowed me to run like that, the inline mount for that pump, I would be all over that. Uh, but yeah, for, for me, I'm, I'm still left, uh, stumbling around trying to find how to carry these spares perfectly. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. Little things like, uh, are on my mind. Like, yeah, I've always, 
obsessed over how to like carry the CO2 inflator with the CO2 cartridge without like puncturing the CO2 cartridge. Um, so, uh, what are they? Blackburn. Uh, they make a, mm-hmm. their CO2 mm-hmm. cartridge comes with like a really cool little, uh, middle adapter that like with, uh, yeah, uh, a female thread and a male thread and, and O-rings in it. And it sort of sits between the cartridge and the CO2 inflator and, and lets you like lock the two together and carry the CO2 inflator on the cartridge with no risk of ever puncturing it. Um, so yeah, at the moment I'm just trying to dial in my dimensions to make a 3d printed version of that and completely rip off their design. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I feel like we've talked about this before, and I will mention this again because I feel like you clearly hasn't you clearly haven't done what I've done. Mm. Um, but I usually, if I, I definitely also like to keep my inflator heads pre-attached to the CO two cartridges, but I just install them with blue Loctite. Yeah, it's too easy. <laughs> like I said, Dave, too much thought versus trying not to think too much. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Hmm. All right. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, as far as what's on my mind, uh, I feel like we've been, I feel like I've come across a lot lately, uh, a bunch of Instagram posts and just kind of social media chattering and discord member discussions about, uh, road safety. Part of it is, uh, just, I feel like we are just constantly bombarded by people that we know, uh, getting hit by drivers and, and it's always just super troubling. And, and, and I certainly am not going to suggest at all that this is the fault of the people riding the bikes. Uh, I mean, of course it always could be, but usually it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, but, uh, I posted on my Instagram page not too long ago, just sort of my, my sort of overall rule that I always keep in mind when I'm riding on the road. And that's always, it sounds kind of crass, but basically I just assume that every single driver that I see out there is blind and stupid. Um, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a little bit crude, but it works in my head yep. because it just sort of always kind of drills into my head to assume the worst out of anyone that I see behind the wheel of a car. Um, and someone actually mentioned to me that, uh, that is actually one of the primary rules that you are taught for motorcycle safety, uh, mm. by the various motorcycle safety foundations. And they don't use those exact words, mind you. Um, but they do, they do stress to motorcyclists to just always assume that no one sees you just assume you are invisible um and i feel like that kind of it obviously doesn't change the behavior of the person driving the car yeah um but i feel like it does at least prepare you to at least sort of like mentally prepare yourself to expect the worst from someone like be it someone who's going to turn in front of you or someone who's going to right hook you um, it just kind of changes your mindset a little bit. And that's just something I kind of wanted to put out there. Yeah. Um, and to keep yourself out of situations where you're, you're vulnerable to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the sad fact of the matter is, uh, most, like I'd say certainly more often than not, especially now, it is true that drivers don't see you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, someone, some people wrote back and said like, you know, they assume that drivers are out to kill you so on and so forth. And, I don't like to be quite that cynical, which mm. might be a little surprising because I'm typically pretty cynical. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't necessarily want to believe that the majority of drivers out there are actually actively trying to harm you. Um, but if you do assume that they are just that they just don't see you and they're real dumb, yeah, um, then you can at least prepare for some of the things that they might do because they often will. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly the way I ride, and uh, I encourage everyone else to ride this way, but. 
what I've seen firsthand and 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 through some friends I ride with is uh it's not good for Strava to ride that way. It's it's a slower way of riding, right? Like you're for me, like anytime I'm approaching a a roundabout circle, whatever you want to call them, or uh, you know, uh, yeah, any sort of intersection, I'm basically on the brakes, making sure that any other car around has acknowledged that I'm there and that yep. I truly have right away. Whereas I ride with other friends and they just assume that the law applies to them and they take the gap that they legally have, but not necessarily actually have, if that makes sense. Right. No, totally. You because know? I've, it's certainly been said many, many times by a lot of people who are smarter than me that it doesn't really matter who is right or who is, yeah. uh, you know, who has been legal or lawful or whatever. Yeah. If you are laying in a hospital bed or dead, yeah. worse off. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not a fight you're going to win. No, no. So I always just like to assume, like I said, that yeah. every driver out there is blind and stupid. And knock on wood, so yeah. far it's worked for me. I'm going to go yeah. ahead and jinx myself right now. No, but, same. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, both of us have spent lives on bikes following this rule, and you know, yes, sometimes it's completely out of your hands. But I can tell you i've actively avoided a lot of situations that wouldn't have worked well out you know wouldn't have uh landed me in a good position uh if i'd just taken a gap that i was i was legally you know um was mine i guess you know rather i've i've come to a stop or or slowed down and and avoided a situation so yeah it's it's good words to live by and unfortunately we're the vulnerable ones out there yeah yeah for sure so as always, stay safe out there. Hopefully that hopefully that little bit of uh I, I hate to I hate to use the word advice because I just feel like advice mm. just has so many negative connotations to it. But um I don't know. Hopefully that little that little bit of mindset attitude uh is helpful to someone. But yeah, everyone stay safe out there. Uh on a on a more fun topic, I know Dave, you have been thinking about e mountain bikes some more since you just bought one. Mm. Yes, I have. Uh, and in our in our members' Discord, there was uh, a few questions related around uh, the lightweight e-bike category and the full power e-bike category, and I guess why I chose a full power e-bike, which uh, more power, more power. So yeah, so full power e-bikes these days have like eighty, eighty-five, ninety newton meters of of torque, and and typically a bigger battery, like a six hundred watt hour or more capacity battery. Well, the lightweight category of e-bikes tend to sit around that 50, 55-ish uh, newton meters of torque now, like the latest ones have that, and uh, typically half the battery capacity, so 325, 350, maybe 400 uh, watt-hour battery, uh, which is there to save weight. You know, smaller battery is significantly lighter. The battery is one of the, is well, it is the biggest uh, amount of weight in when you're talking e-bikes. Uh, so yeah, that's... There's this kind of two schools of thought with that. Um, but basically, uh, and I'm probably more uh, regurgitating the information from from friends, such as uh, Mick Ross, who runs Flow Mountain Bike here. But uh, yeah, basically, the the lightweight category is is kind of uh, closer to a regular mountain bike, but with a, a motor that gives you an assistance. Uh, and the way I, it was kind of put to me is like, it's it's kind of the level of assistance that that good fitness gives you. Um, and that's kind of my, been my experience riding those bikes as well. It's like, if you're really strong and fit and you know, you're sort of race fitness, you can kind of match the power of, of one of those bikes. And if, you know, if, if a friend of yours had one of those bikes you, and you're fit enough, you could really realistically ride with them. Uh, you could ride on a regular bike while they're on like a, a lightweight e-bike. 
whereas the full power e-bike is basically a different sport altogether. It's the the additional power and the the range makes you think about mountain biking differently, and you end up riding trails that you would never bother to ride in on a regular bike because the climbs are either too awful or or, or or too pointless for for the descents they provide. Uh, and and yeah, you also start looking at at climbs or technical sections differently because the the e bike literally will will lift you up stuff that you probably wouldn't think about attacking otherwise unless you're Danny McCaskill or uh some other incredibly talented athlete well i feel like now that you've gotten a full power Mm -hmm. e-mountain bike yeah and i've been on the fence for quite a while i feel like i'm kind of obligated to get one of the lower powered ones now you might be or maybe you need both uh i don't have enough room in my garage for both dave yeah okay yeah fair enough but yeah it's definitely and i certainly don't have enough money let's put it that way yeah (laughs) it was definitely something i deliberated over for a long time because i mean i'm not i'm only 70 kilograms i'm not very strong so uh yeah lifting up my full power e-bike was um on the weekend i had to carry it up some stairs and that was that was like proper well i was in hysterics because it was like i was basically pushing me back down the stairs um so that was I mean, very it's funny. probably what like 24 25 yeah, kilos it's 20 it's 20 yeah 23.7 all up so it's it's a pretty heavy bike and um yeah i was i was losing that battle getting up the stairs it was very funny um whereas that wouldn't be an issue with a lightweight e-bike and it definitely dawned on me um before buying it that yeah i, I really struggled with that decision and in the end i yeah, it's it's the attraction of the full power where you you have no limits on the bike. You can go for four hours and do a true truly epic ride, and and also the idea that you you have a bike that uh, the motor yeah opens up new possibilities. It's not just there to give you a helping hand. It it really is there to change the way you can ride. So uh, and what you can ride. So yeah, that's food for thought. Hmm. I'm gonna have to think about that a lot this winter. We'll see what. We'll see what Santa brings for me this Christmas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking probably not either of those things because Santa is me. So. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. All right then. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and finish up with the PSA here um, because I think we're going to just take this opportunity to actually wrap this up in under an hour for once. Uh, yeah, I know, shocking. Uh, Dave, I think you, look, you had our, I think we both had options for this week's PSA, but I think yeah. I kind of like yours better. So let's oh, see what you okay. have to say here. Well, I don't know what yours is, so I can't compare, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's a, it's a, uh, an overused reminder. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a PSA that'll be fresh to everyone, but, um, just a reminder that there is a big difference between chain loops in the market. And there are absolutely good chain loops and there are absolutely bad chain loops that you can buy. Uh, and while it seems for for people that haven't read up on this, that it seems like, uh, what's the difference? You know, one will be cleaner, one will be dirtier, or, you know, one smells like strawberries and one doesn't. Um, the reality is, is that you can see two to three three times the difference in the durability of your entire drivetrain and you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars in running cost difference between picking a bad chain loop and a good chain loop so fundamentally uh your chain your your chain on a road bike shouldn't be dying in less than three thousand kilometers uh you really should be able to get four five six thousand or if you're on the really good chain loop more than 10,000 kilometers out of a chain, which then means your cassette and chain rings are lasting two to three times that. So yeah, I think that's the PSA is 
do some research. Um, zero friction cycling is a fantastic resource for what chain lubes go the distance and don't wear out your drivetrain. Uh, and yeah, I'd go to zero friction cycling, try find a, a brief report from him because wow, he can write and, uh, he makes you look concise, Dave. Oh God. Sorry, Adam. We love you. I know you're listening. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, not everyone has a month to find out what chain lube is best. Um, hopefully I, I, I will work with Adam at some point and try to come up with a, a more, uh, concise version of of his content that that sort of explains which chain lube to pick and when um but yeah fundamentally there's there's a lot of uh what you call wet chain lubes out there which are more oil-based chain lubes um which are just going to eat through your drivetrain as soon as you get them dirty uh and they require a huge amount of ongoing maintenance to to get any decent durability out of so yeah do some research find a chain lube that works doesn't have to be an expensive chain lube just needs to be better than the one most people use and I think that is something that is important to stress, just the fact that uh, so much of the discussion with chain lubes over the last few years has been about saving watts and mm-hmm. efficiency, um, which is always nice from a performance standpoint, if that's what you're after. But I would say the vast majority of people out there certainly care more about the the longevity of their stuff and certainly reducing the cost uh, yeah. of what is already a very expensive hobby and sport. Um, and that, I think, is – I'm happy to hear that that's what you're stressing here. Um, because most people just like, they're not going to care about a couple of Watts here and there. It's just not, it's just insignificant. But if you were to tell someone that running a better chain lube could save them like $500 a year, that's, that's real money. Yeah. Components are very expensive at the moment. Um, and yeah, if, if anyone's wondering like why I'm not just mentioning my favorite chain lube and why I'm not saying which one just to buy, it's, it's because it, that answer does depend on where you live and how you ride and how frequently you want to re-lube your chain and what level of maintenance you want to do so yeah like the absolute best durability you'll get is is through the crock pot way of using hot melt wax but that's not for everyone and uh it it takes a very different approach to preparation and to ongoing um you know removing the chain and it's certainly not everyone wants to be taking a chain off a bike to to apply lubricant um generally speaking i'm i'm a big fan of wax-based chain lubes but again people that live in incredibly wet and damp areas might might prefer a, a more an oil-based chain loop and there's there's great options there too yep yep but either way like you said do some research do a little bit of reading don't just assume that whatever you got on yourself is the best thing for you and uh personally i will just like i like to try to think less when i can i also mm-hmm. like to do less maintenance when i can because yep. i don't have enough time in the day to do the stuff that i want to do already yep. and i certainly don't want to be spending my time cleaning my drivetrain or replacing drivetrain components Indeed not. Although to be fair, in our in our line of work, James, when the when the chain needs re re lubing, we tend to just grab a different bike, right? <laughs> <laughs> not my personal bikes, though. I mean, that's like, my true. personal bikes. I still got to my personal keep them bikes up and always squeak because I always forget to lube <laughs> to re relax. <laughs> oh, oh, I feel like you just created your whole argument there, Dave. Uh, anyway, sorry. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of Geek Warning. As always, just a, just a quick reminder that uh, Geek Warning is sponsored and is paid for by our members and their membership dues. Uh, we do have monthly and annual options to be a member. We also have lower cost options to be just a reader if you don't want to be part of our members-only Discord channel or if you don't want to participate in the comment section. That is just fine. Um, but all of this is directly funded by you. We don't have any ads or anything right now. So uh, if you want some more of Geek Warning, that is something to keep in mind. And 
we are also about to kick off members only Geek Warning podcast. So mm-hmm. uh, the Bonus regular episode. weekly show will still remain free for everyone to hear. Uh, but we will have a lot of special episodes, a lot of deep dives, a lot of Ask a Wrench episodes, uh, a lot of key interviews with some nice industry people that we talk to every now and then. Uh, all that stuff will go into the members only channel. So that is something to keep in mind. Uh, and also, and since since he's not here to do it himself, uh, we're going to go go ahead and give Ronan a little plug for his new podcast called Performance Process, or Process, as he would say it. Uh, he is going to be looking at all the nitty-gritty performance details that make people go faster, be it in terms of gear or training or what have you. Uh, he's got some interesting discussions as far as people trying to predict the hour records and those sorts of things, little arrow tweaks here and there. Uh, he's going to be speaking with all sorts of performance experts looking at that aspect of things. So keep an eye out for a performance process, and that'll be coming to uh, – coming to actually, I think next week is when the, the first episode drops. So that'll be pretty exciting. So stay tuned for that. Uh, all right. So uh, with that said, uh, if you still are not down to become a member or reader, that is also just fine. We'll be a little sad. But uh, please, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review uh, because that does help us out. It helps people find Geek Warning. Uh, that's very helpful for us. So five-star ratings only, please. But as we always say, you can write whatever you want in the comments. So have some fun with that one. Yep. Uh, yeah. So with that, that'll wrap up for this week's episode of Geek Warning. Thanks as always for listening and we will see you next week. Yes. Yeah,